Uh, it is it's one of those messages that I'll go ahead and tell you, it's not going to be something that's just going to immediately connect with your heart in terms of you going, yeah, that's the life that I've always been looking for. It's kind of counterintuitive, but I will promise you that if you'll follow this, it'll make a positive difference in your life. Uh, do you believe, and I'm not asking this rhetorically, I'm asking for a response. Do you believe that God really does desire for you to be happy in life, long term, that He really wants you to be happy? Good. Because you really are going to need to believe that. And secondly, you're going to need to believe that the Word is true. Because I promise you, the culture is not going to back up what I'm telling you today. And your gut isn't going to back up what I'm telling you today. You're going to have to believe that God wants what's good for you. That He really wants you to be happy. And that His Word is true if you're going to put into practice the three habits that we're going to talk about today. Now, I, I confess, I've never gone out and polled just man on the street kind of stuff to, to find out what people would say. But I'm guessing if you went out today... And at lunch, you just ask a bunch of people in the restaurant, hey, tell me sort of the recipe for finding lasting happiness in life. I mean, if I'm an 18-year-old who just graduated from high school last month, and I want to live my life in a way that I'm really going to be satisfied and happy long-term, tell me sort of the recipe for how to do that. I suspect that if you ask a bunch of people that the collective wisdom of the culture in America today might look something like this. Well, if you're going to have a happy, fulfilling life, first of all, you're going to need to go get a good education because that's going to give you a leg up, right? And once you've gotten a good education, that's going to give you an opportunity for the second major piece, and that is to get a good job, a good paying job in a decent career field. And somewhere during that time frame, you're going to want to get married and have a family because that's a major part of finding happiness in life. And so you're going to need to earn a good living. And somewhere in the, the years that will follow, you're going to want to buy a home. Because owning a home and a piece of property and just sort of having a, a home base to land in is a, an important piece. And you're going to want your career to advance in such a way that you're going to be able to put enough money back so that you can retire at a, at a young enough age that you really can travel and relax and enjoy life and have a good retirement. And if you could do all of those things, there's a real good chance that you're going to have a happy life. Would you agree that probably those are the major pieces or a lot of the major pieces that the world would tell us that you're going to need to follow to have a happy life? Isn't that pretty much the track that most people are trying to follow to have a happy life? But here's the problem with that game plan, because on the face of it, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like that ought to work. Here's the catch. I've known a lot of people who follow that game plan and they are not happy. Now, they look happy a lot of times on the surface. They look happy enough to be able to show up at church and you can shake their hand and say, good morning, how are you doing? And they're well enough off they can smile back and go, I'm doing great, how are you doing? And just past that glued on smile, there is heartache, pain, frustration, uncertainty about the future, uncertainty about a marriage, major problems with kids, just a general sense of, oh, this is not how I thought life was supposed to be. Would you agree that that plan of education, job, marriage, home, career, early retirement doesn't in any way correlate yay or nay toward a happy life? There really isn't a connection between these things. The Word of God gives a completely different set of instructions for a happy life. And... What we're going to see today is not really what we expect to see. It's not what our gut tells us is going to be the case. Because what Jesus says is, 
Happy are those who are humble, for they will receive what God has promised. Now listen, I get it. A message on humility isn't sexy. It's not exciting. It's not one that on the surface of it you go, yeah, that's what I wanted to go to church to learn to do today was how to be humble. But a lot of times it's rooted in the fact that we misunderstand what Jesus and what Paul are calling us to. So I'm going to ask you to trust me on the front end. What we're going to talk about today will be intensely practical. And if you will put it into practice, you're going to immediately begin to see benefits from this. Now, Jesus says, happy are the humble. And you may say, how does humility have anything to do with me really being happy? Well, on the front end, one of the easy ways to illustrate this is just to say, okay, what's the opposite of humility? Everybody knows the answer to this. Arrogance or pride? Well, the Scripture's real clear about this. Proverbs 13 tells us that pride leads to all kinds of arguments. You believe that? Oh, I know that one's a fact. Think about how many times you personally have ever been involved in a conflict and pride drove a whole lot of it. Because you had to prove you were right. It wasn't enough just to say what you thought. You had to prove that you were right. And how many times not only have you gotten into a conflict because of pride, but pride was the thing that gave this little argument that could have you know, been ended in five minutes and it stretches out for days or weeks because two people are too proud to be willing to either one humble themselves and say, you know what, I value this relationship more than I value trying to prove that I'm right. Would you forgive me for just trying to just beat this thing to death and, and prove you wrong in the process? Pride will just stretch out the conflicts. What does that have to do with happiness? Well, that's obvious. Can you be in the middle of a conflict and really be happy? It's not very easy, is it? I mean, you can be in the midst of having great business success. Your career's going great. And you've got a great education and a great house and the coolest car on the road. But if you're having a big fight with your spouse or with your boyfriend or you're in a huge conflict where, you know, one of your kids is estranged from you, oh, it's so hard to be happy in a season like that. And Jesus and Paul help us to see that humility is a primary key to unlocking real lasting happiness in life. And so the passage that we're going to look at today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I've given you in your outline just a little brief outline uh, uh, of what's going to be said in these verses. First couple of verses, Paul's going to make the case that happiness really comes from harmony. It's a wonderful byproduct of having a harmonious relationship with the people right around you. And then harm, that harmony comes from humility, and then he's going to just make a case for how Jesus models both and gives us some real specific things we can imitate from his life. So I want you to listen for those three things as we begin in verse 1 of Philippians 2, where Paul says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, and any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish and don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he gives us this verses 6 through 8. Is that kind of indented on both sides in your Bible? One of those, the next few verses where it stands apart from the others. Does it look like that in yours? You ever notice there are a lot of different passages that will do that? When they do that, you realize 
they're always uh, showing you that that's a that that's an outtake from something else. A lot of times it'll be an outtake from the Psalms or from something in the Old Testament. In this instance, this is uh, what is believed to be the oldest song that we still have written down that was like one of the first hymns that the church ever sang in the first century. It was already in common use in Paul's day. So I mean, that tells you just, just how old it is. Just, just kind of a cool thing to know. That's why it's set apart that these are the words to a song. And believe it or not, it's not Amazing Grace or Just As I Am. I just knew that was what they were singing in Paul's day. But here's what they were singing. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, in those verses, you get a lot of stuff, but there, there are three things that I really want us to glean out of this, and they are, again, just like this whole series, they're going to be specific habits that you can choose to build into your life. We're not going to talk about things that come naturally for you or that you just go, well, I've just been that way since I was born. These are going to be things that you have to be intentional about embracing in your life. But before I mention the first of those three habits, uh, I'll just point out, you know, I said he kind of begins by talking about how harmony leads to happiness. And you see that in verse 2 where he says, make my joy complete by, and then he gives us four different kinds of intimacy that are going to lead to harmony and real happiness when he says, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, and intent on one purpose. In that, it's real easy to see mental harmony, same mind, emotional harmony, the same love, spiritual harmony, united in one spirit, and directional harmony, intent on one purpose. Wouldn't you love to have a marriage like that? Wouldn't you love to have friendship like that where you can just go, man, we just think the same kind of stuff. He completes my sentences. She completes my sentences. Our thoughts are so in tune. And man, spiritually, we're so aligned, moving in the same direction. Just the direction of our lives is just tracking right together. As we're centered on Christ and He's leading us both, that's a great picture of what a relationship is supposed to look like. But then, just a, you know, an honest question, I want to ask you, when you look at... Obviously, we'll be talking about more than just marriage relationships, but thinking about marriages. And when you look at the marriages that you know people around you who are married, how many of those would you say look very much like that? How many great marriages? How many of you could name, off the top of your head, five couples that have great marriages that look something like what we just read about? If you're much like the first service crowd, a lot of head shaking going on. Isn't that really tragic to, to think about? It's like I, from a distance, there are plenty of people that you could go and say, well, they look like they've got a happy marriage. And they, but it's like when you really get to know people well enough that they're willing to open up and tell you the good and bad, isn't it amazing how much of the time you go, oh, well, it's kind of easy to assume they had a happy marriage until I got to know them. And then you find out, boy, they're really, really struggling in their marriage. And yet you read a passage like this and go, that's what I want. I want to have a marriage like that. I want to have friendships like that. I want to be able to experience relationships that are this dialed in with each other. And it feels like so many times we're living on the opposite end of that, doesn't it? You know, it's like instead of all this harmony, 
feels like there's so much conflict. There's so much that we're just rubbing each other the wrong way. Are you at the place that you would like to have less conflict in your life? Anybody besides me that's ready for that? I make you this promise. If you will do the three things that we'll talk about today, I promise you there will be less conflict in your life. Not because I think I'm that smart, because God's Word is that true and it's that effective. If you'll practice these simple habits, these three things, it will reduce conflict and it will elevate the joy and the happiness that comes in your life. So, three things that we'll talk about to reduce conflict with others. And number one is this. Simply choose to put others ahead of yourself. Pride is the downfall of relationships and humility is the building block of every great relationship. You know, when you think about pride and sin, what is the center letter of those things? I. I am the middle of that. You know, pride is the heart. It's been said pride is the, is the root of all other sins. And I, I really do believe that. Pride is just, it's all about me. I want to live my life to make me happy. I want to be the center of my own universe. And our culture tends to reward that kind of mindset. Have you ever noticed how much that's the case? That the people who are the most hung up on themselves, you know, the people who are the most narcissistic, her culture not only says it's okay, we'll reward you for that. We'll give you a big fat paycheck. We'll give you a huge contract. I mean, when you look at the athletes and the entertainers or the doctors or the whoever who are like, you know, I deserve more. I'm this valuable. I mean, think about the ungodly sums of money that people get paid for what they do that go way, way beyond what anybody needs to live on. And, and why do they get it? Because they demand it. Because they think they're worthy of it. And we're a culture that goes, sure, we'll, we'll give it to you. It's a culture that rewards that kind of attitude. Paul says that is not how it's supposed to be. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He gives us these two phrases that are sort of the two sides of the one coin that is pride. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Selfish ambition, it's all about my needs, my wants, my comfort, my career, my success. And we all know people who live like this. You, you, you may live in the same house with somebody who lives with this as their primary mindset. If so, don't point while I'm preaching. You know? But that kind of mindset will lead you to a place where you'll make relationships disposable. You'll walk into and out of relationships or even marriages because life is supposed to be designed for my happiness. I deserve to be happy. And if you're not making me happy, I can check out and look somewhere else to find my happiness because everything is about me. That's what this kind of selfish ambition, what it does for us. James said in James 3.16, where jealousy and selfishness are, there will be confusion and every kind of evil. And that's true whether you're talking about in a marriage, in a home, in a church, in a business. You insert one person as a player in any of those situations that is driven by selfishness and selfish ambition that it's always got to be about them. It, it just brings chaos and heartache wherever they go. And then the other term that he uses there, vain conceit. That is the need to always be right and to always be noticed. Vain conceit. I'm never wrong. I'm always right. And I always need you to notice me. Paul says in verse 3, don't try to impress others. The, today's English version translates that as saying, don't do anything from a cheap desire to boast. 
Now, we could give you any, any number of examples of, of ways that we need to be noticed and need to impress others. But one of the ones that comes to mind that I'll just mention is, have you, since we're thinking a lot about relationships and marriages, have you ever noticed this? That when two people get married, the size of the ring, the size of the rock that he puts on her finger, and the size and cost of the wedding tend to be inversely proportional to the length of the marriage. Yeah, you think about that one for a minute. The bigger the rock, the bigger the wedding, the more expensive the wedding, usually the shorter the marriage. It's like, yeah, the, the guy who's got to put the three or four carat big old hunk of diamond on her finger, and they've got to spend an ungodly sum of money on the most impressive wedding that the community has seen in years. That's the marriage that you look at and go, mm, one year, two years stops, and they'll be going their separate ways. And you may go, well, preacher, you're just being terribly judgmental. Okay, maybe I am, but there is a truth that that's based upon. Stop and think about it. What is it that drives the need to buy the biggest stone or wear the biggest stone? What is it that drives the need to have the biggest, most expensive wedding? I mean, listen, I'm all in favor of weddings. I'm a part of a lot of weddings. There's nothing wrong with making a special day and it being nice. But when you spend ungodly sums of money on a wedding, is there anything else that you do in your life that is more about two people saying, it's all about us today. It is our day. We just want today to be the most fabulous opportunity for you to dress up and bring us gifts and just honor us all day long. Is there any event in our lives that feels more self-centered than a wedding? Seriously. And so it's like when we've got to, and again, I'm not anti-wedding. There's nothing wrong. Weddings are great. It's, it's a God-honoring idea. But it's the fact that we've got to make it just so humongous and so expensive and make everything so big about it. The people who would plan life in such a way that we've got to spend so much on ourselves and what we wear and how we honor ourselves, that says a lot about where your heart comes from. And that's why it doesn't surprise us when we see the people who've got to make it all about them. You get two people like that together living under the same roof. And don't be surprised in the least when they can't live together for long. Two people who get together who are used to it being all about them. And suddenly there's somebody else under the same roof and it, they're not making it all about you. They're making it all about them. And they don't fit well together. They wind up doing this a lot. It's the reason why so many times celebrities and superstars, whether it's athletes or entertainers, and you see them just go through one marriage after another after another. A big part of that just boils down to one simple thing. They get treated like a god by the masses. It's just like, oh, wow, I'm in the presence of greatness to be around them. And then they get married to someone who doesn't treat them like a god because they have to live with them all the time. And they wake up next to them and they know their breath smells like dirty feet in the morning. They, they know that they have B.O. and that they, you know, can be a, a, a grouch and all this stuff. And so they don't treat them like a God. And it's, it's like, well, I can't handle this. Everybody else treats me better than you do. And you should be treating me better than anyone else. And so what winds up happening? Just people going in separate directions. What's driving this vain conceit? Self-centered living, self-centered thinking. And Paul said this. If you want to know what a selfish lifestyle will lead to, Paul paints the most incredibly vivid picture of this in Galatians chapter 5. And Peterson in the Message Translation, man, he just takes this, this teaching and 
and presents it in really understandable terms. So I want you to hear this from the message. He says, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all of the time. Now, now there are some of you listening online, some of you here today, that need to be willing to take a hard look in the mirror and admit, I spend a lot of my life just trying to get my way. And Paul said, okay, if you think that's the way to happiness, I want you to see what this is going to lead to. Chasing after getting your way, this is the life that you'll get. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. I bet if I could do this, I bet if I could have that, you know, if I just could get into this relationship, if I could get out of this relationship, I would be happy. One after another, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Cutthroat competition, all-consuming, yet never satisfied wants. Always needing to have something else. If I could just have that toy, well, that didn't really make me happy. But you know what? If I could have that car, I bet if I could have that house, I'd be happy. If I had a boat like that, I know I'd be happy every weekend. Never satisfied once. A brutal temper. Again, don't elbow your neighbor. But you ever lived with somebody? Lived under the same roof with someone who was very selfish? And you ever seen what a temper they have? Whether it's temper tantrums, or pouting, or crying, or fussing and fuming, or passive-aggressive, I'll just punish you, I'll give you the silent treatment. Wicked temper... An impotence to love or be loved. Selfish people don't know how to love because ultimately agape love is a commitment to meet the needs of another. And selfish people don't have a clue how to do that. Or don't, they don't even get it when people really do love them. Impotent to love or be loved. And then it Jesus says divided homes and divided lives. Where there are some who could just testify. It's like, yeah, I have lived where... You put people into the same roof, but you are not united at all because there's so much selfishness. It's, just, it's a divided home and completely divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits and a, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Why, why does selfishness depersonalize everybody into a rival? The reason's real straightforward. Because the self-centered person sees everybody who gets near them, particularly in the family, as a threat to everything getting to be about them. It's like, well, you actually sometimes want it to be about you. Sometimes you expect us to go where you want to go eat. Sometimes you expect us to actually have to take care of your business. And I don't like that. I like it when we do what I want to do. And so everybody becomes a rival and a threat because you're interrupting my happiness. All of these things devalue and destroy relationships and ultimately take away happiness. But Paul gives us the alternative. He says at the end of verse 3, Be humble and give more honor to others than to yourself. Humility is the basis of every great marriage and every great friendship. Humble people are the ones who don't need to pretend like they know it all, who pretend like they're always right, or who expect everybody else to make their schedules and their stuff revolve around them. He says, be humble. Now, the problem is I think a lot of times we misunderstand what this word means. It's the reason that we don't get excited when we hear, oh, we're going to be talking about humility today. Is I think a lot of times when we hear humble, we tend to think of, oh, well, that's thinking 
you know, less of yourself. It's having a lower opinion of yourself. It's like, okay, the really humble person is the one who's like, oh, I'm nothing, you know. I'm a nobody. I, I'm not that smart. And, you know, I mean, in the kingdom of God, I'm probably the smallest man. I'll probably have the smallest mansion in heaven because, you know, I'm just nobody. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's a really humble person. Not at all. That doesn't have anything to do with humility. That is not even remotely connected to what Paul is talking about or what Jesus is talking about when he says, happy are those who are humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And there's a big difference between the two. I mean, all those statements that I just made about, I'm nobody, I'm so low, I'm not smart. What's wrong with every one of those statements? They're all about me. They all start with I. It's all focused on me. Humility is the exact opposite of that. Humility is not sitting around thinking bad, negative things about myself. Humility is thinking less about myself and more about others. Humility isn't pulling me down. Humility is building you up. Humility walks in a room and looks for other people to connect with, other people to build up. Humility looks for needs and seeks to make connections that are going to build others up. You know what pride does when it walks in a room? Pride's like, I wonder if anybody's going to notice my new haircut. I wonder if anybody's going to notice my new dress. I hope I look skinny to everybody else. I hope I'm, hope I'm what, you know, it's all about me. Humility is the exact opposite of that. Humility is just focusing on others and on their needs instead of on myself. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It's really interesting to note that in the Scripture, you know, God makes a lot of promises for things that we do. You know, people who do this, this is what God promises to do. Did you know that humility is number two of all the things listed in the Bible in terms of the number of things that God promises to those who are humble? It's second only to generosity. People who are generous have the greatest number of promises from God. And by the way, these two things are so tied together. Because when you're the humble person thinks of others ahead of themselves, and so when you do that, then you're willing to share with other people. You're willing to, to want to supply their needs. But makes the most promises to the generous, and right behind that is humility. To the humble, God promises His presence. He promises His peace. He promises uh, to honor them. He promises prosperity power and success. All of those promises from the Word of God to people who humble themselves and seek to honor others. When we talk about God, the one word we most closely associate with God is that God is love. So let me ask you this. Does a God who is love hate anything? It's not a trick question, by the way. Does God hate anything? If God loves you, does He hate stuff? Oh, He absolutely does. You can't read the Word without running across all the things that God hates. And near the top of the list is pride. God hates pride. He absolutely despises it in us. He opposes it. And it says here clearly, God opposes the proud. Now, here's one for you to think about. You can be right... But if you're cocky and arrogant about it, God still opposes you even though you're right. Ooh. Ponder that one. 
Because we really do tend to operate with a mindset in the church and just kind of in America, don't we? You know, it's all about being right. As long as you're right, all is good. And you know what God says? You can be as right as long as the sun shines. But if you're full of yourself, I'll still oppose you. I mean, think, you know, as Christians, we just feel like as long as I'm in the right, then God has to bless that. And you know what God says to that? It's your heart that has to be right. And a proud heart, an arrogant mindset, it doesn't matter how right you are in, you know, I did the right things. I gave 10% of my income to God. God, you have to bless me. And God's going, you know what? You, you can be right in your action. Was it right for you to tithe? Great. But you know what? Your heart isn't right. You've got an arrogant attitude and God always opposes the proud. And then he says, as the promise there, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, what's grace? It's the God-given ability to do what you can't do. Grace is the ability for you to forgive when you don't feel forgiving. It's the ability for you to compromise when you don't feel like compromising. It's the ability to have healthy relationships that you can't make healthy. That's grace. God gives grace to those who humble themselves. First of all, He says, put others ahead of yourself. Secondly, He teaches us a, a real simple principle of relearn the lost art of paying attention to others. You know, I, I really believe the blessing and curse of our day is what modern technology puts in our hands. The gadgets and the gizmos are so distracting us that it's really fouling up our ability to do relationships well. We're so turned into screens, dings, and rings that we don't know how to connect with real living people sitting across the table from us. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's epidemic. Most of you are going to go out to lunch when we leave here. Just test what I'm talking about. You... you Check multiple times while you're eating lunch in a restaurant today. You look, do a 360 around the room, and you look to see how many tables have people sitting at them where there's a living, breathing person right across the table, three feet away, and instead of focusing on them, they're doing this. And more importantly, watch your own table. Watch what happens with your own family or circle of friends that you're sharing lunch with. And see how many times a burp or a ding or a ring completely pulls their attention off of the people who are present there to give it to somebody else. I'm telling you, it, it's killing relationships. It is beyond rude when someone has given you their time and attention to sit down and share an hour with you whether it's on the couch or, you know, to share time with you over a meal, that you would again and again and again stop to go, hold on just a minute. Sorry about this, but I, I need to take this. I need to check this. Listen, you can explain that until you're blue in the face about, well, you know, it's also my business number. and Well, you know, I mean, we've got children. Or this might be an emergency. This might, you know what all of that is saying? You know what that's all about? Pride. Think about the heart of this. I am so important. The world may not be able to function properly if I can't be accessed for 30 minutes while I share a meal with you. That's how important I am. So I must check this. I must check this. That's a Facebook. Somebody may have changed their status. 
and they need to know whether I'm going to like it or not. So put that thought on hold. I'll be right back with you. I am so important. I mean, you ever just stop to think for a minute? People have been around for thousands of years. And up until the last 15 or 20 years, nobody had a cell phone with them. When they went to lunch, they were out of touch for an hour. And the earth still rotated on its axis. I mean, I don't know how. I don't know how God kept it all working until, you know, we could be reached. You realize how jacked up we are and how we think about this? And the net result is this. Every time that we're going, just a minute, I'm sorry, I'm, I need to answer this. What we're saying every time, I mean, you might as well reach across the table and go smack. Don't really have time for you right now. I'll be right back with you. Because it's that offensive. Because what you're saying is, you are not worthy of my focused time and attention for 30 minutes while we share a meal. And I'm going to show you that again and again as I check my phone and as I respond to this stuff. And I know some of us right now are squirming in our seats because it's like, oh. Do you want to have healthier relationships? One of the simplest things that you can do is relearn the simple practice of giving focused, undivided attention to the people who are present with you. Be fully present. There need to be times where you can answer your phone. There need to be times when you can answer text and you can respond to Facebook or whatever. It does not need to be 24-7. You need to be able to give yourself to people. Paul said this in verse 4. Don't look out only for your own interests. Some of us need to just write this on our cell phones, smartphones. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Okay, don't misapply this and go, that, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm interested in all these other people, all of my friends who have my number, all of my friends who might need me. That's why I need to check this. Come on, get real. Is there anybody who needs you more in this moment? I mean, how many times have you needed to go put out a fire in the middle of a meal? How many times have you needed to go rescue a bleeding child from an accident while you were sharing a meal? Not very often. I'm not saying it never happens. That becomes a lame excuse to justify not taking an interest in others. He's just saying, look, pay attention, listen, take an interest in the other person, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what's going on in their day, what they care about. Dads, great parenting tip for you. You want to connect with your kids? Take a real interest in their lives and what interests them. Because the culture is changing at a rate that we've never observed anywhere in any culture at any time in history before, it really is an interesting thing to study. The, the cycles that cultures go through have, have accelerated to a point that it's very, very difficult to, to forecast where things are going to be even by the end of our lifetimes because there, there's just this, the rate of change is it's very interesting because it's not just that it has sped up, it is that it continues to accelerate. And one of the results of that is there are so many things that change by the time the next generation reaches the age that we are now, you know. The generation that's, that's right behind us, that's 20 or 30 years behind us, we look at the things that they're interested in and the things that they're doing and connected with, and how many times do we go, well, I don't even get that because we didn't have that when I was their age. And so with our kids, you know, we go, well, I just have a hard time relating to this and this because, well, so much has changed. Yes, it has. 
And the rate at which that's going to continue to change is only going higher and higher. And so we have to, to try that much harder to bridge the gap. And one of the best ways we can do that is just choose to take an interest in what you don't personally have any connection with. Particularly when you're trying to reach across generations to go, wow, I, I never even heard of that. And, and man, <laughs> how many times as parents do you feel that way? Or, you know, as grandparents that you're going, I don't even know what that is. Having to get past that and go, I'm going to find out what that is. Because my kids or my grandkids are connected to that. Take an interest in others. And that is not our nature, is it? In fact, let me give you a great illustration. If right now I pulled out my iPhone and I stepped back and I snapped a picture of you right here, right now, and then I sent it to Philip and he projected it up on the screen, what's the first thing you'd look for in that picture? Everybody would do the same thing. Every person in the room, you would look for you in the picture, first of all, wouldn't you? Why? Because you're, you're checking some things out. Ooh, did he catch me sleeping? Did he catch me like with my mouth open with a stupid look on my face? No, more importantly, how do I look in that outfit? Do I look skinny in that? Do I look fat? I want to make sure that I look good. And our evaluation for every one of us of whether it's a good or bad picture, though it's got dozens of other people in it, our evaluation is based on one thing, isn't it? Do I look good in that picture? If so, that's a, that's a good picture. I like that picture. And if I don't look good, it doesn't matter if everybody else looks right. That is a sorry picture. Philip, you need to take that thing off the screen. That's a bad picture. Because it's all about me. Now, you're not going to root that completely out of your life. You're not going to change the fact that you're going to immediately look to you. But it is evidence of the fact that I'm going to have to work on some disciplines in my life. I'm going to have to learn to discipline myself to take an interest in others ahead of just being interested only in myself. Learning the art to pay attention others to others and realizing that oftentimes the greatest gift that you can give somebody is your time and undivided attention. Some people will spend lots of money and give all kinds of big gifts and feel like, you know, you need to be impressed and see how much I love you. But look, you'll have more money. You'll get more money. You can always have more stuff. The thing that you give away that you never get back is time. That's why that's the greatest gift. Time and, and devoted attention. Learning to, to focus when you're with someone. You ever just find yourself struggling to actually take an interest in what other people are saying? Do you ever catch yourself just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh? And if they stopped and went, what did I just say? You'd be like, busted. Because your brain is always running to the next thing. You know, you're not talking about what I want to talk about. Or I'm just, I'm just waiting for my chance to get in and say what I want to say. And I really don't care what you have to say. Learning to take a real interest in, in others and what they're saying. And then the third thing. Ask yourself what Jesus would do. Now, I realize that, uh, that this is something that we've made really kind of trite because of what we did with this in the 90s. The statement that he makes in Philippians 2.5 is you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Well, in the 90s, everything turned in, that was Christian turned into w, w, uh, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? It took that classic question from the wonderful old book in his steps and commercialized it. We stamped it on everything that you could possibly sell and then we tried to sell it in Jesus' name. And if you're like me, it just got to the point, it's like, if we put WWJD on one more thing, I'm going to scream. It just, it, it was kind of crazy how far we went with that. Unfortunately, what's lost in that 
is that what, what the writer was saying and in his steps is one of the most fundamental issues in Christianity. And that is, it's the question we all have to ask and we have to ask it frequently in every situation that matters in some shape or form to ask the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Because at the heart of everything, I am a Christ follower. And all that boils down to is in day-to-day decisions is I try and do what Jesus would do. Because I follow Jesus. I imitate His example. Here's the great dilemma. We're lost a lot of times as to what Jesus would do, aren't we? Don't you feel like that often? And part of the reason that we feel lost as to what would Jesus do in this situation, I really do believe this, is because we've just really gotten confused about who and what Jesus was. And some of this is true for us who've been in church for a long, long time. And... I just talk about it like this, that, you know, God made us in His his image and we decided to return the favor so we've remade Him in our image. You ever notice how we do that? We just envision God in a way that reflects our values. And, And you can hear it in how we talk about God. Well, I mean, I know God would never, and we fill in the blank, reflecting our values. I know God would never want me to this or God would never ask me to do that. And we'll just kind of fill in the blank with whatever reflects our values. I mean, look around the room. I'm sure Jesus must be a white middle-class American, right? I mean, I know we don't go quite that far, but it's like the Jesus that we envision most of the time would represent middle-class American values. Listen to how people talk about Jesus. Or if we don't take it quite that far, we may not even be able to flesh it out that much. We'll just boil it all down to Jesus was a nice guy. And so if I'm going to be like Jesus, I just need to be nice. And I'm Southern, so it's nice. Y'all be nice, because Jesus was nice. And I'm sure Jesus was Southern. But do y'all get it what I'm talking about? That we really do project onto Jesus what we expect. I mean, like, I'll give you an example, and I do not want to run far with this example because I know we'll get tangled up theologically, but it's like, you know, when you talk, talk about one of the weightier matters of Scripture, you know, does God choose you or do you choose Christ? You know, does God elect you for salvation? And I'm not fixing to say something radical in one direction or the other because the Scripture affirms both sides of this. But, you know, the, the whole idea of could God make people that from creation were made for eternity with Him? And does God make other people who are not? Which is really one of the tough, weighty issues of Scripture that people get really tangled up over. And the argument from one position of that is, oh no, God couldn't make people who were born you know, with really no opportunity. It's, it's why people get so tangled up over, but what about the person who never hears about Jesus? God couldn't send them to hell, could He? It couldn't be that he's going to make somebody who's going to live in an environment where they're never going to hear the gospel and then they would die and go to hell. And you'll hear people make the argument and they'll go, well, I know that person couldn't go to hell. Why? Because it wouldn't be fair. Okay, I said I'm not going to go real far with this and I'm not because I know already some of you are like going, wait a minute. But do you catch what the problem in this is? We're making God in our image. We're setting limits on defining what God is like and what He could or could not do based on what we have determined is fair. You see the problem? God is supposed to be a reflection of us and our values in that that way of thinking instead of just going, you know what? God is the I am. 
He is the self-defined one. He is not defined by anyone or anything else. And the only way for me to know about God is not by looking at myself and me saying, what would I do and what do I think is fair? And so God would have to do this because I say that it's fair. No, it's the other way around. What God does is always right, and He defines right. And He defines His own character. And I need to get, get to know the very real person of Christ. And He is way beyond nice. So what does it mean to be like Jesus? Well, if I'm going to find that out, I'm going to have to really know the Word. I'm going to have to really search for who Christ is in the Scriptures. And it's amazing how many times He does not look like the American Christian culture version of Jesus. And I'm going to really have to let the, te- the Spirit teach me what it means to be like Jesus. But Paul gives us three examples of what it means to be like Jesus. And these are practical. I'll mention these before we're done. The first one is this. If I'm going to imitate Jesus, it's going to mean that I don't demand what I think I deserve. We tend to go through life thinking that we deserve a lot and demanding a lot in, in, as a result of that. And if you don't think that's the case, just watch how we behave when we're dealing with a clerk in a store or a waiter or a waitress. In these situations where they're, they're very common, they're very, you know, everyday, and you let a clerk fail to give you the attention that you think you deserve, to fail to give you the immediate service that you think you deserve, that they don't get your prescription filled as quickly as you think you deserve, or you know, they don't fill your water glass as quick as you think that you deserve, and you watch how quickly we get so frustrated and we demand better service than what we're getting. That's just a reflection of a bigger problem. I deserve this from you, and I demand it. And if I don't get it, I may have to speak to your manager, or I may have to cut your tip, or whatever. That's reflective of a heart that says, I demand to get what I deserve. And, and again, I mean, I'm tickled to be an American. I don't mean to sound, I'm not trying to sound un-American when I talk about things that tend to be problems in American culture. But one of the things that's kind of an American ideal is, you know, so much of what our country is built upon is understanding our rights. You think about it, the Bill of Rights is such a fundamental document in defining who we are as a nation, and that's a good thing. But because we're so linked to that, it's like part of being American is we know our Yes, and we demand our rights. And at one level, that's a good thing, but we, we take that so far that it's like we live all of our lives knowing our rights and defending our rights. And the only thing that I would say about that is understand Jesus did the opposite of that. Jesus gave up his rights. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I mean, you ever just stop to think about the incredible mystery of the incarnation that Jesus was fully man and fully God all rolled into one? I mean, when we say he's fully God, he was not a man who had a spark of the divine in him. He was fully God in the flesh. He was still the God who created everything, who existed from eternity past, who by His powerful Word formed everything that has ever existed, and who by His power and authority holds everything in place today. He was God on earth as one man. He is the God who is so glorious that the Scripture says there is no sun or moon or need for their light in heaven because the radiance of His glory lights all of heaven. That's intense. That's Jesus. That Jesus came and lived and walked and talked and interacted on earth. I want to tell you, that Jesus, you know what He's accustomed to in heaven? 
He's accustomed to something that comes really naturally. That the hosts of heaven gather around Him and they fall to their knees and they honor Him and they declare, Holy, 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 fully set apart and different are You, the Lord and King, who is the first and the last, the Almighty, the Everlasting One. You deserve to receive honor and glory and power and wisdom and riches and blessing and praise for you were slain before the foundation of the earth. And on and on they go in worship to Him. That's what Jesus is accustomed to because that's how great He is. It's not because He orders that. It's what He naturally receives because of His greatness. He came to earth and He got none of that. What He got was questioned, accused, doubted, lied about, mistreated, multiple attempts to murder Him. I don't know about you, but if I was God, God who made everything, God who gave every good thing that humanity has ever received, and I showed up on earth, I think I would be tempted at times when that kind of stuff was going on to say, shut up. Get on your knees and worship. I'm God. I made you before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. I knew you. I made you. Don't talk about me. Don't come and accuse me. I mean, he's God for heaven's sake. What Paul said is, Jesus didn't try and take advantage of any of that. He humbled himself and took on the form of just another man who was willing to be questioned and accused and things demanded of him and he didn't demand anything in return. And that's our example. Not demanding what we deserve. Now, when you think of this in terms of relationships, the biggest relationship you'll have on earth is with a husband or wife. You can demand what you deserve. Wives... You can declare, it is only fair of me to expect this from you. And you lay out everything that you expect your husband to do around the house. And you know what? You're not out of line for thinking that. But if you demand it, good luck to you. Good luck getting a happy relationship and good results out of that. Husbands, I'll go a mile beyond that with you. You can demand that your wife give you all the loving in the bedroom that you need and that your libido desires. And you can say the Word of God says your body is not your own and I demand that you give me the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Well, good luck with that. Good luck finding any, any intimacy or joy with that. You demand what you deserve and what you'll get is resistance. When you let go of your demands, that's when people are willing to let down their guard. Though Jesus was God, He didn't think of equality with God as something to cling, to cling to. Instead, He gave up His divine privileges. You can get your needs met without blowing people away in the process. Secondly, imitating Jesus means I look for ways to serve others. He says in verse 7, Jesus made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You just can't be like Jesus without serving others. And this doesn't come natural for most of us. But the culture teaches us that greatness is in one way measured by how many people serve us. And Jesus says, I turn the whole thing upside down. Greatness is not measured by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. 
the greatest among you will be the servant of all. We tend to sort of feel like, you know, it builds up our self-esteem to have a greater salary or status or more stuff. And what we find from Jesus' example is our self-esteem is built up the most when we serve others. And there is nothing intuitively right or that connects about that, is there? I mean, when I just say that, hey, do you really want to build up your self-esteem, feel better, and, and just be happier in life? Give your time and energy to serving people who can't give you anything back. I mean, on the surface of that, that doesn't make a lick of sense, does it? And yet, if you want to prove the point, it, it's so simple. Ever been on a mission trip to a place where people are desperately in need? Ever gone to the third world and, and gone into a nation where people are desperate and just gone in and given yourself away, serving them for a week or a month or whatever? And you come away not feeling empty because you've just worked like crazy from daylight until dark. And you've spent a bunch of money doing that. You don't feel empty and used because of that. You come away full of a sense of just joy and satisfaction. You, you're built up on the inside out by giving away and serving others. Because this is how God has wired you. God's wired you in His image. He is ultimately a giver. Jesus gave of Himself to serve others. And God honors and promises to honor the people who do that. Maybe there's not a better example in our lifetime of this than Mother Teresa. I mean, you ever just stop to think about her life? She chose to spend essentially her entire adult existence serving the beggars of Calcutta, India. She didn't do that to make a statement or to create a platform that she could then leverage to be a person of influence later in life. No, she just gave her life to serve the Lord by serving the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. Now, how did God honor that in her life? She wound up addressing and influencing the most powerful bodies on the planet. The General Assembly of the United Nations. The U.S. Congress. She's a nobody who went to serve the least influential people on the planet. And in God's evaluation of things, he says, that is the mark of some of the greatest that I've ever had serve me. The one who's just willing to serve the lowest of the low. He turns all that back around. He honors those who serve Him. And so I want to just give you a couple of examples as tests. Because, I mean, there are thousands of ways for you to flesh this out in, in a marriage or in friendship and in, in close relationships. But... Just this whole thing of being a servant. Okay, you're going to get up in just a few minutes and leave here. And if, when you leave, if you have to make a little trip to the restroom before you go, and there's, you know, half-wet paper towels that are on the floor that somebody missed the trash can, and, you know, soap that's dripped out of the, the dispenser all on the, the countertop, and it's just kind of nasty. Do you look at stuff like that and go... Glad we've got staff. I hope somebody comes in soon to clean this up and just leave it. On your way to your car, you see filthy trash that's been run over a few times and laying there. Do you just walk by and go, somebody needs to pick that up and go to your car? Or do you say, there's an opportunity for me to serve. There's an opportunity for me to pick up that trash, to tidy up the restroom or whatever. I heard a great example this week. Um, 
Dan Cathy is the son of Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And if you know anything about his story, just such a rock-solid believer and, and created an organization that was built on Christian values. And so Dan Cathy, his son, has succeeded him as CEO. And, and a guy who, who knows Dan, uh, who was telling the story, said that he went and visited a place where they were building a new Chick-fil-A. And at the construction site, he said, we got in there and got our hands kind of dirty, Dan and I did, uh, on the site. And so he said there was a Taco Bell next door. And so he said, we just, when we were done, we walked next door into their bathroom since there wasn't water on the construction site. And we went in to wash our hands. And he said, when we went in, the bathroom was not tidy at all. And he said, Dan didn't say a word, but he just got busy getting paper towels and just cleaned up the entire area, not just the sink that he was using. And when he was done, he just washed up and left and didn't say anything. Didn't report it to the manager or anything. Just cleaned their bathroom and left. And the guy telling the story was like, what is up with that, dude? That's Taco Bell. That is your competition. And you just went in and cleaned their bathroom. Why would you do that? And he said, because it's the right thing to do. And that's what we teach all of our employees to do. That every environment you walk into, leave that environment better than you found it. And he said, we, we've created an entire manual on this that we give to all of our employees. It's called Second Mile Service. It's based on the teachings of Jesus. Somebody compels you to go with him one mile, you go with him too. Somebody asks for the, the coat off your back, give him your shirt as well. You, know, you, you go beyond the minimum that's required of you. And they've built an entire organization where that's the culture of the organization. And oh, by the way, why do you think that Chick-fil-A is blowing the doors off of the competition as they follow the teachings of Scripture and experience the blessing that goes with that, service is at the heart of it. So, what do you do in those little situations? Because, remember this, character is revealed in a moment, in a crisis, but character is built in thousands of different ordinary moments where you have an opportunity to serve and do the right thing or to pretend like you're here to be served. If you stop at the grocery store on the way home, when you get out to your car with the buggy and you unload your stuff and you look around and realize there's not one of those little buggy returns close to you, do you just go, well, there's other buggies just left by the car. It's not going to hurt anything. And leave it right there and drive home, knowing somebody else can come do that. Or do you take the time to, to do the right thing? I know those are tiny little things, aren't they? Those are the moments where you're going to practice the disciplines that shape your character for you to learn to be a person who serves or that you learn to be a person who's selfish and expects to be served. Jesus chose to serve. And then finally, the last thing that I'll say is that if I'm going to follow Jesus' example, it means I have to do what's right even when it's painful. He says that when Jesus was living as a man, He humbled Himself. He was fully obedient to God even when that caused His death. Death on a cross. Bottom line is just real simple on this. It's easy to, again, to boil down following Jesus into, I just believe when I'm following Jesus, if I, my heart's good and I'm praying, that God will just open and close doors to reveal His will. And a lot of times what that boils down to is, I'm going to follow the path of least resistance, and I'm going to call that the will of God, because I'm sure God is going to make the way easy for me. And that has nothing to do with what the Scripture reveals. The will of God is oftenly not the open door, which is, in fact, the path of least resistance. The will of God, in many instances, will be the harder thing. It'll be the thing that to obey God, to do what Jesus would do, is going to 
require sacrifice or service or cause pain. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He did the will of God the whole time He was on earth. And many days, that was difficult and painful. And the culmination of that was His greatest act of obedience, which cost Him His life. And Paul is just saying, understand this. When you're committing to be like Jesus, it means that you're willing to do the hard thing. And you're willing to say, the will of God is oftentimes the harder thing to do. So if you do all of this, is there a payoff? Or is it just a hard life? Because would you agree that the things we've talked about today do not come to you naturally? If they do, I will swap places with you and gladly let you preach the next six sermons in this series. Because that stuff doesn't come naturally to me. It takes discipline and intentionality. But there is a payoff. He tells us of the reward in verses 9 through 11 where he says, Therefore, God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor, and he gave him the name of all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what he said right there? Is that when Jesus had lived this life of honoring others above himself and just completely giving himself away, he would just fully give his attention to one person at a time. And, and ultimately, he was willing to just serve and give himself away. And the result of that was he did that better than anyone ever had. And God, at the completion of Jesus' ministry on earth, the Lord just turns this completely around and he says, I'm going to give him the greatest honor any human being has ever had before. Here's how it's going to play out. Every human being, the Hitler's, the Saddam Husseins, the best people in the world, the people who have been, you know, morally good, the Gandhis of the world, the cutthroats of the world, the God-honoring people of the world, all of you are going to bow before Jesus. You're going to bend your knee. You're going to bow your head. And you are going to declare, this Jesus, He is Lord, He is Master, He is King, and He is God. Everyone will honor Him. But you know what the implication of that is from that? Is that along with Jesus, everything being set right for Jesus, everything among humanity is going to experience the same flipping over so that it's finally in its correct position. That those who have chosen to follow His example and live humbly and serve others are going to be exalted. They'll be given the positions of greatest honor, responsibility, and authority for all of eternity. And all of those who have lived for themselves and expected others to serve them, who've lived a self-centered life, are going to wind up on bottom for all of eternity. This is why Jesus could say, those who are first will be last, but the last will be first. So, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live for you? For a little while, or do you want to give away what you really couldn't keep in the first place to serve others and honor the Lord and enjoy the benefits of that? If you're like me, boy, there's a lot of undoing that has to take place. I need a lot of grace for that to happen, but boy, I want to cooperate with that. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in asking for that? Lord, we are so grateful for your grace in our lives and how we do need it. And we ask you today for that grace, for the strength and desire to live outside of what's normal for us. Would you help us to learn to put others ahead of ourselves and to really 
give our attention to others and to just truly follow the example of Jesus, to know Him and His character and to follow that. Would you forgive us for the times when we come up way short where we've been driven by pride and selfishness and I pray that you would, by the work of your Spirit and the truth of your Word, continue to root those things out of us. I ask you right now to just ask the Lord to show you the person or persons that you need to practice the very things that we've talked about today with them. Maybe there's been ongoing conflict or awkwardness or you just know you really need to reach out to serve them, to give your attention to them. Just him to just bring to mind a name or a face. And would you ask him to give you the strength, the grace, the ability to love them, to honor them in the ways that we've talked about today? Lord, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, but we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit working through us to do in us what you require of us. And so we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen.